It's Revelation chapter 5. Sometimes I preface the reading by a statement like this. Let us turn to this word of life, this book of books, this God-breathed word. We can't elevate the word of God too highly. The word of God with its supreme authority is just a breath from heaven. And there is power in that word. And God has pledged himself to use it too. And may it be a blessing in the reading and preaching tonight. Revelation 5. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now, we ourselves sitting in the house of God tonight, we can say very much the same thing about the Bible, this book of books, this God-breathed word. There's no man worthy in himself to open this book or even read it. I hope having said that, you haven't neglected it of late. And if you have, it's time to double back and ask God to help you. Refresh your soul through his word. And there were, t- there were tears on the part of the holy apostle. And, and he explains why. Now we could say for ourselves, we're, we're not worthy to open the book or, or read it. Or even look on it. But hasn't the Lord given us a powerful privilege? Thank God for verse 4. And for that application of it. It just means that while you listen to the message and take that message home with you, you have this little extra detail. Think about as well. You say, thank you Lord, give me tears. Even when I open the book. That would be appropriate, you see. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, And of the four beasts, or the four living creatures, as the senses, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, 
and sat upon the throne. Again, coming back to the illustration of the Bible, it's the Lord Jesus himself who can best take the book for you and for me and open that book. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living ones, four living creatures, four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. God's dear people have been praying. Those prayers are precious. And they sung a new song, singing and saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice many angels round about the throne and the living ones, the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them. Heard I saying, Blessing, and honour, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And I love these words coming up now. I really do. Blessing, praise, you see. Forever and ever. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Can we take it in tonight? Sitting in the house of God, can we take it in? Forever and ever. Have you the assurance yourself of God's great and free salvation? And the four living ones, the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth. And again we have these tremendous words forever and ever. Isn't that great? My prayer, Lord, bless thy word tonight, the reading of it, and the preaching of it too. Amen.
Let's take our Bibles and we'll open them together again. Revelation chapter 5, along with some other portions of God's Word uh, in this book. And we'll just pray together. Let's seek the Lord. We're thinking again about the subject of heaven, as we have been doing over the last three Lord's Day evenings. This is your fourth study in the great subject of our home in heaven. And let's just pray that the Spirit of God will open our hearts. Let's seek the Lord together. O God, in the quietness of the moments that remain in this meeting, we want to know much of the speaking voice of the Spirit of God, illuminating the sacred page. O God, make our hearts tonight soft, and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of this precious book, and give us, Lord, a greater appreciation, a greater sense of anticipation for heaven and for home. Do you remember those who are not yet converted? May this be the night when the Spirit of God will draw them to the cross. We pray in the Savior's name and for God's eternal glory, asking for the help, the anointing, the infilling of the Spirit of the living God. Glorify thy Son, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Vance Havner was a famous evangelist in the United States of America. And he once said regarding heaven, One hour in heaven, and we shall be ashamed that we ever grumbled. One hour in heaven, and we will be ashamed that we ever grumbled on earth. What a place heaven is, according to the word of God. And whenever we stand from eternity's perspective... And those of us that are saved and we stand with our feet within the the walls of the new Jerusalem in the immediate presence of our God and our Savior, we will look back in this world and we will testify that yes, with the Apostle Paul, our light affliction was but for a moment, but it worked for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. And it's vital tonight, absolutely critical, that everybody in this meeting house tonight And everybody that's joining us online and watching maybe from the comfort of your own home is absolutely sure and absolutely certain that you're on the road that leads to heaven. We have been asking and answering some great questions about heaven. Who goes to heaven? Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those who are wedded as the bride of the Lamb. And those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb, the inhabitants of heaven. And then we began to think as well about the architecture of heaven. What will heaven be like? And we consider that the word of God says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven is described as a kingdom, a country, and a city. And we thought about some of the details concerning heaven. And then last Lord's Day evening we asked another question. What will be in heaven? And be considered for a few moments the attractiveness of heaven. Last Lord's Day, we looked at that question from a negative aspect and we thought about many of the things that won't be in heaven. According to Revelation 21 and 22, no more sea, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no temple, no sun, no moon, No night, no defilement, nothing that works in abomination or makes a lie, and no more 
curse. And we're going to look tonight at the flip side of that, what will be in heaven. And we're thinking tonight about things that positively will be in heaven. Now the Word of God, I have to be honest, maybe doesn't teach us all the things that we desire to know in this regard. The Apostle Paul said that the eye hath not seen, neither hath the ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. And so there are many, many things and experiences that we will enjoy in heaven, and yet the Word of God doesn't shed light on those things. And there are many things that we will enjoy in heaven that will not even begin to compare with the best things that we have enjoyed on life on this earth. And yet the Word of God does shed light about some of the things that will be in heaven. And I want to speak tonight very simply about some of those things. We've looked at some of them, of course, already. We've thought about the great city and the walls of the city and the foundation of the walls and the gates within the walls and the streets in the city and the throne and the river and something of the sea of crystal before the throne. We want to look tonight just at some of the aspects that are found here in Revelation chapter 5 about some of the things that will be in heaven. We want to look tonight at the seraphim or the angels and then some aspects of the saints and then some aspects concerning the Savior. Look at verse number 11 of Revelation chapter 5. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. Heaven will be inhabited by angels. Now the Bible has a lot to teach us tonight about the angels. And a number of months ago, maybe a, a couple of years ago, even we thought about, about the whole subject and the whole doctrine of angels. And we learn many things at that particular time. And it speaks here about the angels in heaven, the cherubim and the seraphim, these sinless, mighty beings that even would have us standing in awe of them. The Word of God says that even John, whenever he beheld that angel that spoke to him, John fell down before him as if he was ready to worship. And the angel spoke and said, See thou, do it not. Worship God. We're only to worship God. But if we were to see even one angel tonight, as they are revealed in heaven, we would stand in awe of these remarkable beings. The Bible calls them cherubim. It also calls them the seraphim. And we need to remind ourselves tonight that angels are very real. The Word of God says that He has given His angels charge over us to keep us in all of our ways. And even whenever we meet together publicly, there is a very real sense in which the angels of God watch on and look on with amazement as the redeemed of the Lord meet together and worship the Lord in meetings like this. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the angels watching on in public worship. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant was covered with a golden mercy seat. And in that mercy seat, you had the images of two cherubim facing each other, but looking down towards the blood. 
And Peter, the apostle Peter, speaks about the gospel sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So angels have a great interest in the saints of God. And the saints of God, in turn, should have a great interest in the angels of God as well. You'll notice here in Revelation 5, verse number 11, there's an indication regarding their position, their position in heaven. I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. The throne in which our Lord Jesus Christ resides on is central in glory. Central to the kingdom of heaven is the throne. Central to the celestial city is the throne. Central to the new heavens and the new earth is the great throne of God. And the angels here are gathered together around that throne, looking on in wonder, love, and praise and worship. Because they recognize that the throne is central. And they themselves are subservient to that throne. Do you remember the Lord taught us to pray on the Sermon on the Mount? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, the angels of the Lord are serving him and are subservient to him. And they stand before him in awe and in reverence. This verse, I believe, also makes mention, perhaps we could say, of the song of the angels. Now, some people have tried to say that there's no reference in the Word of God as to angels singing. Some of our hymns might speak about the song of the angels. And sometimes we take it for granted that whenever the multitude of the heavenly hosts came and they announced the Savior's birth, Gabriel announced the Savior's birth, and then there appeared with the angel the multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. There are some that will say, but it doesn't expressly say that the angels actually sing. Well, there's a little verse away back there in the, in the book of Job, chapter 38. And Job was filled with many, many questions as to why he had suffered so much. Questions that he maybe didn't receive answers to, but the Lord in answering Job's questions, began to ask Job a lot of questions himself. And in Job chapter 38, the Lord says in verse number 4, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it, whereupon the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars or the angels, that could be rendered, sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? There's no doubt that not only did the angels speak, and not only did the angels shout, and cry aloud, but the angels also sing. And I believe that they sing in the presence of the Lord. You'll notice something of the words of praise that they utter here around about the throne as they gather together. And it goes on to say in verse number 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. They speak of the lamb. 
They speak of the cross to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing, honor, glory, power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There's great depth in these words that will be uttered in heaven as the Lamb in the midst of the throne is worshipped. And you'll notice that these words are full of richness and full of doctrine and full of theology and full of reverence and godly fear, uplifting and magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we should praise the Lord with all of our hearts. But the Bible also says they that worship God must worship Him in spirit, but also in truth. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. The worship that is ascribed to your Lord in heaven is intelligent worship. It's based upon the truths of the gospel. And it shows and reveals God for who He is. And it's ascribed to Christ and to Christ alone. Worship needs to be intelligent. It needs to be uttered with understanding. Yes, the right motive, but also with understanding. It needs to be biblically based. And we see that here as we think about the worship of the angels in heaven. I'm not out to decry the motives or the intentions of many But so much of modern worship is light. So much of modern worship is really void of the truths of the gospel. So much of it is sentimental and simply repetitive and set to music and goes on and on and on and very often is void of real understanding of the doctrines of the Word of God. Notice as well verse 11, their number. It speaks of the number of the angels. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And what we're really being told here is that there is an innumerable company of angels, just as it is with the redeemed, a great multitude that no man can number. So it is with the angels in heaven. The book of Hebrews 12 and 22 says, Here come unto the Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. And whenever we consider that, it reminds us of the size of this great city, and the size of that great country, and the size of that great kingdom, and the size of the new heavens and the new earth. What must it be like to see not only one angel, but an innumerable company of angels, cherubim and seraphim, round about the throne. And we're told in the Gospel of Matthew 25 and 31 that whenever Christ comes back again, he's coming with all of his holy angels. It's going to be a remarkable thing whenever the Savior comes back again. And we could consider as well here their very obvious reverence. 
They're gathered round about the throne. And they're singing this great song and they're praising the Lord. And we see a a little window on that in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And as he looked on, the temple became filled with smoke. But around about the throne of the Lord, he saw the seraphim and they had good wings. Six wings, as a matter of fact. With two of the wings, they flew. With two of their wings, they covered their feet. And with two of their wings, the very seraphim veiled their faces before the Lord. It shows us their reverence and their awe and even their fear as they stood in the presence of the Lord. And that brought conviction to Isaiah's heart. Whenever he saw it all, he fell on his face and said, Lord, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And the Lord came and touched him and purged his lips and said, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. You see, if we really saw the Lord as he is, we too would confess our need for cleansing. And we would also consecrate our lives completely and fully and finally to him. I wonder, has there been a time in your life whenever you've saw something of the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God and you've recognized I need to be forgiven, I need to be cleansed and purged, and you've given God your heart and your life completely. The seraphim. You'll notice also something of the saints. The book of the Revelation has much focus on the saints in heaven. That is to say, not those who have been canonized or eulogized by a church or a denomination, but those who have been redeemed, those who have been brought to Christ, those who have been born again, those who have trusted Christ and Christ alone as Savior. In Revelation 5, verse 9, there's mention there of the redemption of the saints. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Great multitude again that no man can number. And every single one of them out of every tribe, kindred, and nation can testify to a time in their life whenever they realized that the Son of God loved them and gave himself for them. And they came and they were converted. And they were redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only people who will find themselves from this earth and one day in glory are those who have been redeemed. Those for whom the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed. First Peter 1 says, We're not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, received from your vain conversation or tradition of your fathers, but we are redeemed by precious blood. The blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I wonder tonight, have you ever been redeemed? The cost of our redemption was the highest cost that heaven could afford, the blood of the Son of God himself. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be brought back. 
It means to be purchased. Sid Murray was an old Elam pastor. Some of you may be sad in meetings that he conducted over the years. I'm not sure if he's still alive or not. But Sid and Lily Murray, they were a godly couple. And he had a remarkable conversion experience from a life of gambling and drunkenness and paramilitarism and all that goes along with that. And he was wonderfully converted. And he often talked about, in his younger days, he would take maybe a watch or a a wedding ring or a piece of expensive jewelry. And in order to gamble and in order to drink, he would take it off to the pawn shop and he would sell it to the pawnbroker. And then later on, if he came into a little bit of money, he would go back. And if it was still there, he would redeem it. He would buy it back. And whenever Sid Murray was converted, along with his wife, they went around the country giving their testimony. And a little booklet came out about their testimony. And it was quite simply entitled, Out of the Devil's Pawn Shop. Because that's what redemption is. The Son of God came. Whenever I was lost in sin, far away from God, in the devil's pawn shop, selling my soul, and the Son of God came and redeemed me with his precious blood and lifted me and claimed me for his own. Body, soul, and spirit have been redeemed by the Savior at the cross. I wonder tonight if you ever understood that. The saints in glory, we see their redemption. We also see as well, of course, their rejoicing. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain. And their praise is directed to the Savior. And it's all about Calvary. It's all about the cross. All eternity, the saints of God will be praising Him and worshiping Him. If you go over there to Revelation chapter 7, And verse number 9, John says again, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindred and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. They've got palm branches in their hands. We have noted that there certainly is a tree of life in heaven. I believe heaven will be like the Eden of God and there will be much life in it. And here they have palm branches in their hands. Now what's the significance in Scripture of the palm branches in their hands? Palm branches are symbols of victory and of rejoicing. Back there in the Old Testament economy, in the book of Leviticus chapter 23 you're introduced to what is called the Feast of the Tabernacles. There were many feasts that the children of Israel Israel kept on their wilderness journeys. And then whenever they settled in the land of promise, maybe the most well-known one is the Feast of the Passover that looked back to their redemption through the blood of the Lamb. But then there was also the Feast of the Tabernacles. And that looked forward to a time whenever they would rest from their journeyings and wanderings in the wilderness. And they would enter into the land of promise, enter into the place of rest. And we're told in Leviticus 23 and verse number 40, that ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. 
And whenever the Israelites returned from their captivity under Ezra and Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem again, we read about them keeping that great feast of the tabernacles. And they took palm branches, Nehemiah 8 and verse number 15. And it says at the end of verse 17, there was great gladness. Heaven is a place of rejoicing. Heaven is a place of singing. Heaven is a place of great gladness. And whenever the Son of God himself was going into Jerusalem for the last time before going to the cross, they took palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were praising and worshiping the Lord. There's going to be great gladness and great rejoicing someday in heaven. And you know something we could do with a little bit more of that rejoicing and that gladness down here in earth below. W.P. Nicholson said lots of Christians nowadays have just enough religion to make them miserable. Do you ever hear that little chorus? Smile and give your face a rest. Dear friends, we should be filled with the joy of the Lord. The Bible says that God's salvation is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Romans talks about joy in the Holy Ghost. Let's not leave all our joy and rejoicing and singing and gladness until we get to heaven. Let's experience a little bit of heaven in our lives down here below. Because the Lord has redeemed us. And the children of the Lord have a right to shout and to sing. But there's also the reward of the saints in heaven. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 12, we're introduced again to the words of the Son of God who says, Behold, I come quickly. The word quickly there means suddenly. I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments. There's no such thing in the Bible as a salvation that does not lead to obedience. Obedience is a symptom of God's salvation. And the Lord promises great reward to them that serve him. The Son of God said that even those who give a cup of cold water in his name shall in no wise lose their reward. Matthew 25, the Lord told a great story, a parable, about rewards being given out. And the master saying to some, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you ministered unto me. And they didn't even know that they had really been serving the Lord in that capacity. They thought they were just helping and encouraging and blessing other saints and helping the poor and the needy. And they said, Lord, when did we do this? And the Lord says, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of them, that believe in me, you've done it also for me. Maybe tonight you think, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm not an elder. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not an evangelist. I don't have great gift or great talent or great ability. Friends, what is done for the Lord is never, never lost. The least that's done, a cup of cold water, done and given for the Lord's glory and the Lord's name, with the right heart attitude, the Son of God says there's going to be a reward even for that. What a thing it must be to hear the well done of the Lord. The redemption of the saints. The rejoicing of the saints. The rewarding of the saints. Well, what about the recognition of the saints? 
This is a great question that many people will have. Will we know one another in heaven? Well, there's no doubt that whenever we get to heaven, we will all be different. The Bible speaks about a resurrection day yet future. And whenever we see the Savior, we shall be changed and we shall be made like unto him. But at the same time, even though our relationships will be somewhat different, we will still enjoy fellowship and glory, and certainly we will know each other. Do you remember in Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John were brought by the Savior himself up to the top of a mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Word of God says that as the Lord was there and they looked on, he was transfigured before them. Must have been one of the most remarkable things that they'd ever seen in all of their lives. The Lord's humanity, yielding to his glory and his deity, and his majesty shone forth. And then, like Isaiah 6, this cloud came and overshadowed him. But there appeared with the Lord Moses and Elijah. And Peter, James, and John had never seen or met Moses and Elijah before. But instinctively they knew, Lord, let us build here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And those were saints that had gone on to be with the Lord. And they appeared there in the mount. And disciples, believers, yet living, recognized them in that remarkable state. And it just shows us that somehow we will know one another in glory. David, king of Israel, said concerning his little boy that died in infancy, in First or Second Samuel 12, 23, he said, He shall not come to me, but I shall go to him. And he had the assurance, I will go to him, I will be with him, I will see him again, and everything that day will be made right. We have a wonderful future we have a wonderful, wonderful inheritance. Even though glorified in heaven, we will somehow know each other. Some of you have heard the story about two old saints. They had been married for many years. They weren't as pretty or as good looking as they once were. And they were looking into each other's eyes. And she said, honey, do you think whenever we get to heaven that we'll know each other in heaven? And he says, well, sure, do we know each other down here? And she says, yes, we do. And he said, well, do you think we're going to be bigger Egypt's up in heaven than we are down here? If we know each other here, certainly we will know each other in heaven. The Bible says in heaven we will have perfect knowledge, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Then shall I know, even as I also am known. Perfect knowledge in heaven. The seraphim. The saints. But just in closing, what about the Savior? Central in heaven will be the Savior himself. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6. And I beheld, lo, in the very midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. The lamb in the very midst of the city in the very midst of the elders, in the very midst of the angels, in the very midst of the four living ones, in the very midst of the throne, the preeminent one in glory, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And all through his earthly ministry, you see that typified and foreshadowed. 
boy of 12 years of age, he was sitting in the midst of the doctors of the law, in the midst of the temple. Even whenever they crucified him, he was crucified in the midst. He's always central. And central in heaven, central in glory, will be our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Anne Ross Cousins, as she read the words of Samuel Rutherford's writings, she wrote that great hymn that we sang earlier. And she said in one of the verses, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Central to heaven will be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ our Lord has got many titles in Scripture. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. The rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys, the vine, the door, the way, the truth, the life. And so it goes on. Dozens and scores of names and titles are ascribed to him. But in Revelation, there are three titles that stand out to the fore. Revelation 5 and verse number 5, or Revelation, sorry, 5 and verse number 6 says that he is the Lamb. And all throughout the Scriptures, we recognize again and again and again the Lamb. And the Lamb is mentioned some 29 times in the book of the Revelation. He's the Lamb. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That little Passover Lamb typified the Savior. That little Ram that was offered in the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah typified Christ. When Abel brought the firstlings of his flock, it pointed to the cross. Whenever God took coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve, it pointed to the cross. And every time we break bread and we recognize something of the Savior's shed blood and His body that was broken for us, it points us again to the cross. The person and work of the Savior is ever central. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God. I wonder, have you ever done that? Has there been a time, friend, in your life Whenever you've recognized the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He's the Lamb, but he's also described in chapter 5 and verse number 5 as being the Lion. He's the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. And way back there in Genesis 49, Jacob spoke about Judah and he spoke about the lion that would come from the tribe of Judah. In the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, mention is made of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then in the last book of the Bible, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there's something inspiring of the image of a lion. The very image of a lion inspires awe and reverence. And there's a lion in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the lion. He's the lamb. But he's also, of course, the Lord. Revelation 19 and verse number 16. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. All heaven recognizes the lordship of Christ. The angels confess it. The saints confess it. Have you ever recognized it in your life? The Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
not just in a theological sense, but in a practical sense? Have you surrendered your life to him? Trusted him as your saviour? but acknowledged him as your Lord. Has there been a time whenever you've said, King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. The titles of the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the Lion. He's the Lamb. And also the triumph of the Savior. A great multitude which no man could number of all kindreds and nations and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb with white robes and palms in their hands. They sing of his victory. They sing of his triumph. He now reigns upon the throne and all things are under his feet. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated hell. He reigns in the power of an endless life. As sovereign and the supreme, God has highly exalted him and given to him a name which is above every name. And there's a day coming when at that glorious name every knee shall bow. He's in control of all things. What confidence a Christian has. Beloved, if we could see a window opened in heaven or a door opened in heaven just now, we would take our leave of this world and we would run with swift feet Because if we could just see something of heaven tonight, we would want to be in it immediately. I don't know about you, but I believe that whenever many of God's people leave this scene of time, they see something and they feel something in their souls of the glories of heaven. Whenever Stephen was being martyred and stoned to death, it says in Acts chapter 7, And verse number 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God. And despite all that was going around him, he somehow seemed to be translated before he entered into heaven itself, translated to another world. And he said before that great crowd, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. And then he began to pray as they stoned him to death, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he, that is his body, fell asleep. But his soul was carried into glory itself. Just like Lazarus, the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. Heaven will put to right all of the things that have been difficult on earth. Vance Havner again said, one hour in heaven and we shall be ashamed that we ever grumbled. Famous story is told of a woman in America. She realized that she was being followed by a truck driver and she got very afraid truck driver was following after her street from street and through lights and all sorts of things. She tried to lose him in the traffic, but she couldn't outrun him. Panic set in. Her heart rate began to accelerate. At last, she saw a service station and the light was on and she turned her car into the service station and parked as close to the door as she could and she jumped out of the car and she ran into the service scene screaming that she was being followed and chased by a truck driver and she was afraid for her life. The truck driver pulled in behind her and he jumped out of the cab of his lorry. And rather than chasing the woman into the, 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 into the, the, the room there, he, 
he ran to the car that she had left and opened the door and reached into the back seat and pulled out a man that he had saw getting into the car who was going to attack her and maybe even rape her. All the while she was running from the wrong person. She was running from the one who wanted to save her. And maybe tonight you're exactly the same. There's a saviour. And tonight perhaps you're running from him. But he realizes the danger that you're in. But you don't respond to his pleadings. Maybe you're afraid to come to him. And yet he provides escape from defilement. Escape one day from despair, from discouragement, from depression, from death, from despair, and from damnation. Why not stop running tonight and turn around and behold the Lamb of God and get right with him and give him your heart and give him your life?